The following lecture was delivered at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Shays Taub now presents his lecture, Is God in Heaven or on Earth? I used to learn Chassidus, specifically the book, the second volume of Tanya, called Shari Yichud Ve'amune, in a Chavrusa, uh, as a study partner with a Buddhist priest. You want to take one guess why I used to study Tanya with a Buddhist priest? One guess. What? He was Jewish. He was Jewish, like any like any decent Buddhist. He was he was Jewish. <laughs> and uh, actually, he was one of the most brilliant people I ever met. Absolutely brilliant. He could easily discuss brand new topics. And in fact, one of the, to me, one of the signs of genius is not only he could easily discuss these concepts, but he could actually make jokes about them. And they were funny. Like he could make a joke about a new idea that he had just heard. It was actually funny. A brilliant guy. Anyways, he uh, got his PhD in philosophy from Princeton. And then being a very earnest person, he says, you know, I learned all the philosophies, all the ideologies in the whole world. I have to pick one to live according to. So he already knew that Judaism had nothing to offer because he went to Hebrew school. So unfortunately, <laughs> right? And that was, cross that off the list, unfortunately, like happens to so many American Jewish youth. So he says, you know, Buddhism, and then that's what he chose, and he threw himself into it, and he became uh, a Buddhist priest, because, you know, they, like they say, the Jews are like everybody else, only more so. <laughs> so if a Jew becomes Buddhist, he can't be a regular Buddhist, he has to become Buddhist priest. Anyways, so why is that just that? It's just the way we are. It's just a Jewish thing. Huh? What? I told you, he went to Hebrew school. So... That's a very clear answer. So anyways, one time we were studying together. And I forgot, I forget now what particular line we had just read. But he got really, really excited. And I remember he started like almost screaming. And he was saying, that's radical. That's radical. And I'm thinking to myself, okay. I mean, I think that's good, right? That's getting a reaction. What's radical? So I asked him, what, what, what's radical? And he just keep, he keeps going on. He says, that's radical. That's radical. So I said, what? What's radical? And he just keeps going. It's radical. It's radical. What's radical? Finally, he says something a little bit different. He says, nobody says that. That's radical. Only you guys. Only you guys. Nobody says that. Only you guys. That's radical. So I'm thinking to myself, I don't know what set him off, but whatever it is, it was something that we just read in this book, and he says it's radical, and he says nobody else says this, and I happen to know that he has a PhD in philosophy from Princeton, that he studied every philosophy, every ideology, every religion known to man. So if he says, nobody says this but you guys, he probably knows what he's talking about. It probably is a peculiarly Jewish, if not peculiar, peculiarly Hasidic idea. And I want to know what it is. I'm very curious at this point to know what is this radical statement that in my, what they call the expert blind spot. You're so used to something you don't even know what the bombshell is. So now I'm pleading with him, tell me what's radical. So he says to me, finally after he calms down, he says, some say 
that the phenomenological universe, phenomenological universe means um, the world of our senses, the the, the physical plane that our uh, the physical stimuli exist in, and we we perceive with you know, touch and taste and hearing and sight and uh, smell. So he says, some people say the phenomenological universe does not exist. It's an illusion. Others say it exists, but it only has relative value as a stepping stone to get to a world that is more true, a spiritual plane. Nobody says, except for you guys, that the ultimate purpose of all is here in the physical world. That is radical. So that was my, uh, what we call uh, in Jewish, my first day of school, as it were. Realizing that this concept was, was radical and uniquely Jewish. And that's what I want to talk about with you today. This radically Jewish idea that defies the conventional understanding of both spirituality and materiality. Let's start like this. Let's start like this. The Jewish people, our origins, are from the patriarchs and the matriarchs. One of our patriarchs was Jacob. Jacob had a twin brother, Esau. When their mother, Rebekah, was pregnant, she felt conflict in her womb. She felt the two children fighting, vying with each other. And the Medrash says that they were fighting, Jacob and Esau, these in utero, the two twins, over the inheritance of two worlds. The physical world and the spiritual world. Now the classic question is, we know that Jacob is the spiritualist. Scripture testifies that he was a simple man, Ish Tam Yeshev Eholem, who would sit in the tents of Torah study. He was a scholar. He was a spiritualist. Esav was a hunter. He knew how to hunt. He was a materialist. Why are they fighting over two worlds when I have a perfect peace plan? Let Jacob take the spiritual realm. Let Esau take the material realm. And we have peace. And of course, the answer to the question is that from a Jewish perspective, you cannot have one world without the other. Okay, so then what are they fighting over? (laughs) If they both want the same thing, right? They both want two worlds, then make an alliance. They both have the same agenda. No, they have opposite agendas. They both want both worlds, but for opposite purposes. Is the material here to serve the spiritual, or is the spiritual here to serve the material? And if you want to sum up this whole dichotomy, this whole conflict that runs through the ages, which from a metaphysical standpoint is really the story of the Jewish nation, that's really it. It's the story of the marriage between the material and the spiritual with the proper relationship struck between heaven and earth for the proper goal for which one God created them both. Okay, that's rather philosophical. Let me me try to bring this down. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, was interrogated while he was imprisoned by the communists. And 
at one point, they became very frustrated with him that they couldn't break him. The KGB were masters of psychological manipulation. And the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, was, uh, he wasn't responding to their tactics. So they got frustrated with him. And one of them pulled out a revolver. And he started brandishing the gun. And he said, snidely, this little toy has been known to make people talk. So the previous Rebbe said, still unshaken, that little toy is effective on those who have one world and many gods, but I have one god and two worlds. What was he saying? For years, I used to think that story meant, you know, well, you kill me, I'll just, I'll go to heaven. I have two worlds. But it's much deeper than that. And eventually, I saw where the previous Rebbe's successor, our Rebbe, the seventh Rebbe, explained actually the deeper meaning of that story. It was really a discussion about ideology. Here you have this communist. A communist is what? Marxism is, is a is a theory of history, dialectical materialism. What is dialectical materialism? It's that every fight is about the material world. It's about divvying up resources. And religion is the opiate of the masses. It's a distraction. So there's one world, the physical plane. That's the end all and be all. Previous Rebbe is saying to them, you are materialists. You reside in a reality which is one dimensional. There's only a material plane. And as a consequence, by the way, you have many gods, because every power and every force in that physical plane is another power over you. So for all intents and purposes, it's a god. But I simultaneously exist on two planes of reality, which are equally as real, the material plane and the spiritual plane. And even this interaction that's taking place right now is happening simultaneously on two planes. So what you see is not completely what you get. This is the tip of the iceberg. And if you want to know who's in control here, who's in power, the facade, the physical veneer, the superficial view might not be as accurate as if you had the whole view. And in fact, you know, if you look at Jewish history, look at Jewish history the improbability, the statistic improbability of Jewish continuity and survival, clearly there's something more at work than meets the eye. There's much more behind the scenes than what we see. So the previous Rebbe was saying like this, you can assess the situation and who has power over whom from a superficial point of view of a one world reality, where there's only the physical plane, but I'm informing you, I have one God who made two planes of reality, the spiritual and the physical, and what you are reporting to me is only incomplete data. You're not taking into account that there's a much bigger picture over here. We live in a world today where the ideological heirs of dialectical materialism have made inroads into popular thought to the extent that materialism is such a ubiquitous worldview that people don't even know it's an ism. What do I mean by materialism? Materialism is not conspicuous consumption. You know, I have to have a new car, I have to have a new boat, I have to wear the latest styles. Conspicuous consumption is a symptom of materialism. But materialism is essentially like any ism, it's a worldview. And it's a worldview which reduces all reality to stuff, physical stuff, to things, physical objects. So where, where do you see an example of the effect of materialism on conventional morality? For instance, just to make this a little bit more relatable, I'm trying to bring this down from the philosophical, try to make it a little more practical. Remember a few years ago they had that 
that incident at the zoo in Cincinnati, right, Harambe, the silverback gorilla, and the kid fell in, and they shot the gorilla. And people were up in arms, how can you shoot a gorilla? Where does this come from, the moral equivalency, that it's even a question whether you save a human child or if you allow him to be brutalized by an animal? Where, where does that come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. It's the same worldview somebody was saying to me the other day that they says, you know that a chimpanzee and a human being share 96% the same DNA? I didn't mention to him that a human being and a banana have 60% the same DNA. But what I did tell him is I said, and, and what if you would tell me that a human being and a chimpanzee have 100% the same DNA? What if they had 100% the same DNA? You think that that would change my worldview? See, from a, from a materialist point of view, everything is the physical. So if two things are made up of the same physical stuff, they're identical. But we as Jews know that there's so much more than the physical makeup. So even if you were to tell me that my body and a, and a chimpanzee's body are identical, okay, that's the body, okay, no problem. What about the soul? And, and that's the problem with this rampant worldview. It's a reductionist worldview. It's reductionist. It takes everything and it reduces it to one thing, to physicality. And when you do that, when you're blind to the spiritual dimension, what do you end up with? What are the moral results of such a worldview? Charles Mayo, you know from the Mayo Brothers, the Mayo Clinic? He wrote an article in the uh, American Journal of Medicine back in the 30s. And he was already criticizing medical materialism. And he said, you know, that the value of a human being is 86 cents. How much is a human life worth? 86 cents. Because if you take a human being and you look at the chemicals that are present in the body, how much phosphorus, how much magnesium, how much potassium, and you sell these chemicals as commodities, you have 86 cents. So I saw recently on the internet somebody adjusted it for inflation. You're in luck. It's about $5 now. So <laughs> the worth of a human being, from a, from a materialist point of view, a human being is worth $5. And, and we live in a world where this, this ism, this materialism, this worldview is so rampant that it's taken for granted. It's like the air we breathe. People don't even notice that they've subscribed to this worldview. I was on a college campus last year, and a, a, a girl, a young lady there, took exception to something that I said, and, and she demanded that I answer the question, was that statement logical? And I said, yes. She got upset that I, that I said it. Yes. She says, no, how, how, how can you say that it's logical? I said, I feel that it has a certain consistency. I feel like there's, a, there's an intelligent argument that I could make for my, for my cause. It, it, it's logical. She says, but can it be proven by science? I said, do you understand that you've now changed the question? She said, no. It's the same question. Is it logical? Can it be proven by science? I said, that's a totally different question. I asked her then, I said, let me, let, me, let me make a statement here, and you agree with it or disagree with it, according to your worldview. The only way we have to know about the universe around us is the scientific method. Is that statement true or false? She said, it's true. I said, do you know that that statement itself is unscientific? Because, you understand that? It's, it's a logical statement. I happen to disagree with the logic, and I could argue against the logic, but it has a certain internal consistency. But it's, it's not scientific. Scientific means that you can observe empirical data with your five senses and interpret that data. That statement is a philosophical statement. It's dealing with ideas, with abstraction. So there's no scientific experiment that you could devise that could test and prove or disprove that statement. So her worldview that the scientific method is the only way to know about the universe is itself a philosophical idea, and it's not empirically demonstrable. 
My point to you is that the materialistic worldview is so taken for granted that people just accept it almost from a point of view of religious fanaticism, almost with blind faith, or maybe I would say yes, completely with blind faith, that if it's empirical, meaning if I can relate to it with my physical senses, it is truth. But this isn't new. This isn't new to the 20th century. This isn't new to medical materialism. Um, the Jewish people have been vying with this, I, I, as I told you, from the time of Jacob and Esau. In the times of the Talmud, when we lived under the uh, influence of the Roman Empire and its culture, it was called Epicureanism. It's very interesting. The rabbinical term for a heretic is an apicurus. In the Talmud, an apicurus is a heretic. Where does that come from? It comes from the word epicurean, somebody who subscribes to the teachings of Epicurus. Epicurus was a philosopher who said, essentially, that the only point to life is here in this world. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's it. Live it up in this world. That's all you got. In the times of when the Jewish people were traveling in the wilderness for 40 years, do you know that the biggest ideological threat to the Jewish way of life was an idol worship called Baal Pa'er? What was the worship of Baal Pa'er? A very strange, disgusting form of worship. People used to eat, they would consume food, and then they would defecate in front of the idol, which you would think is not a way to honor an idol. But that was the way that they honored Baal Pa'er. Why? Because it was to show that after we've consumed something, after we've had the physical experience of eating it, that's the end of the line. We're done. We're done. So the ultimate worship is to show that after I derive physical pleasure, there's nothing left but waste. But you, know, you, 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 can, you, can, you, can, you can think of Balpur worship as something completely foreign and anachronistic, and how do I even relate to it? Or, or you can understand that actually, essentially, that is the underlying message of materialism, which is the most predominant worldview in the world today. It's essentially the same idea. The idea that there's one world, there's one plane of reality, that's it. The physical, the material. And therefore, human beings and chimpanzees, who says they're so different? That's what we're dealing with today, the reductionist view that we reside in a reality composed entirely of things. Things. Everything is just a thing. The table, the chair, the desk, the lamp, the person. Things. Now, how do we start to free ourselves from this prison? of living in a, in a reductionist reality. We have to shift from thinking concretely to thinking abstractly. There's the concrete and there's the abstract. The concrete means the world of things. The abstract means the world of ideas. You know about the rabbi who was fundraising for years to put up a new building. And on the day of the ribbon-cutting ceremony, the press was going to show up, the mayor was going to be there, and the last thing they did is they paved the parking lot. And uh, just before the, the ribbon-cutting ceremony, two little boys came out of Hebrew school, and they were playing tag, and they ran through the wet cement, and they tracked up the wet cement. And the rabbi saw this. This is after years of working on this building. He lost his cool. He started screaming at these little boys. They tracked up the wet cement. How dare you? And as he's screaming at them, one of the boy's fathers pulls up for carpool. He says, Rabbi, you taught us that our sages say anyone who gets angry, it's like he worships idols. And now you're screaming at these boys. And the rabbi said, yes, but that was in the abstract. This is in the concrete. <laughs> so there is a world of things, the concrete, and there is the world of ideas, the abstract, the empirical and the philosophical, let's call it. How do we start to shift from a world of things to a world of ideas? 
in the language of Jewish philosophy, Chakira, it's called Choymer and Tzura. Choymer means substance, Tzura means function. So for instance, if you look at a piano, you can reduce it to its substance. You can say it's a wooden box. And it's therefore not all that different from a packing crate or from a bookshelf. It's a wooden box. That's its substance. Or you can look at it additionally from the point of view of its function. That the packing crate, you put stuff in. The piano, you touch the keys and it produces sounds which can reduce a human being to tears, which can move a person, can take them back to memories, can, can bring them deep into thought, it's all from touching these little keys and producing these sounds. Now, if you take the piano and you smash it open looking for the music, you won't find it because function isn't a thing. Function is an abstraction, meaning there's the what and the what for. In Yiddish, it sounds better, vos and farvas. In Yiddish, also farvas doesn't just mean for what, it means why. So there's the what. What is this thing? I don't know. It's a bunch of wood. It's a bunch of uh, nails. It's some uh, muscle and bones and skin. That's what this thing is. That's what. And then there's the farvas. Why does it exist? Why did its creator bring it into being. What is its purpose, its function, its meaning? Those ideas, purpose, function, meaning, are already abstractions. And that's why, by the way, you can't devise scientific experiments to determine meaning or purpose. You can test in a lab what something is, not why it is. That's the realm of philosophy or religion. But it's not the role of science, which is going to look at what something is. We, we, the Jewish people, we, we want both. We want both. From the time that Jacob was fighting with Esau over two worlds, we wanted both. We don't want things without meaning, but equally, and here's the radical concept that my Buddhist priest friend was conveying to me. But we also don't want meaning without things. That's the whole punchline. We don't want things without meaning, meaning concrete without abstract. But equally so, we reject the notion of meaning without things, the abstract without the concrete. In other words, just as much as a body needs a soul, a soul needs a body. Physical intimacy without love is not physical intimacy, but love, marital love between a husband and wife that's not consummated physically is not love. or it's not the love that it could be. It's fundamentally lacking because it doesn't have physical expression. So, the Jewish point of view is that it's not that we reject the materialists when they say that the physical world is important. It's that we reject why it's important in their worldview. They say it's important because it's all there is. We say it's important, and that's why Jacob was wrestling with Esau. That's why he wanted the physical world. He wanted the physical plane. We say it's important because without it, all of the holy ideas remain in heaven. They remain theory. They remain abstract. There was a Hasidic teacher. We called him uh, Rashbatz, Reb Shmuel Betzal. And he was once conducting a Hasidic Fabrengen, a gathering 
one of these informal get-togethers where Hasidic Jews get together and they say l'chaim and they toast each other and they sing a song, a meditative melody, tell a story. If you've never been to a Fabrengen, I highly recommend the experience. Anyways, there was a Fabrengen at the home of Rashbatz. And uh, as it happens sometimes when a Fabrengen is going really well, the Fabrengen was going into the wee hours of the night. And they ran out of food. They ran out of food. Now, a Fabrengen is not about food. I mean, if you want to eat food, you can just eat food. A Fabrengen is about the camaraderie. It's about the singing. It's about the words of Torah. I mean, that's the big thing, the words of Torah. But on the other hand, if you run out of food at your Fabrengen, <laughs> then no one's going to stick around for all the camaraderie and the singing and the, and the words of Torah. So you couldn't just run to the 7-Eleven in the middle of the night and go uh, pick up a bag of chips. So what did he do? Rashbatz and his wife, they owned a sheep. They were not wealthy people. They had a sheep. They used it. They, they would sell the wool. That's how they made a living. So uh, Rashbatz, he went and he slaughtered the sheep and he roasted it. And he served the sheep. They had roast meat. That was their... That was their uh, Farbison, we call it in Yiddish. That was their uh, food for the Fabrengen. Anyways, it was a very nice Fabrengen. Everyone was very inspired, very uplifted. And uh, around dawn, everyone you know, went back home. And that was the end of the Fabrengen. The next day, Rashbatz's wife says to him, where's the sheep? Sheep is gone. So he says to her, my dear, the sheep is here. She says, uh, I don't see it. Sheep is gone. He says, no, 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 no. I have to take exception with that. Uh, the, the sheep is very much here. Only yesterday, it used to say, bah. Today, it says, echad. If you don't know, Shema Yisrael Adenoi Eloheinu Adenoi Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. One. What does one mean? It doesn't just mean that there's only one deity. It means oneness. There's only one reality. Heavens and earth, spiritual and material, abstract, concrete, soul, body, it's all one reality. So he told his wife, the sheep is still here. He just changed form. In fact, it was an upgrade. Because now the sheep is the fuel for the fabrengen, which will lead to prayer and meditation and conscious contact with God. That's what it means to live in two worlds. We need things. We need the physical. Of course we do. We cannot be ascetics. We cannot sit on a mountaintop and renounce the world and take a vow of poverty and a vow of celibacy and forget about the world. There's nothing more un-Jewish than that. Of course we need the physical world. But why? Why do we need the physical world? Not because we enjoy it. Not because we're weak and therefore God gives us an allowance and he says, well, if you'll do some mitzvahs, I'll let you throw in some physical stuff that you enjoy. No. The reason we as Jews insist on having physical things, physical resources, is because everything is fuel. Everything represents meaning if it is used correctly. Like Rashbatz's sheep. So we cannot allow Esau to take the physical world and we'll just go off into the ether and content ourselves with spirituality and abstraction. We need the physical world. And in fact, God's greatest desire 
is the perfection of the physical world. What does God want? We're told, the Medrash tells us, that God created because he had a taiva. That means a lust for a dwelling place in the physical realms. God did not want to be relegated to the heavens. God wanted to be at home here on earth. The first time God had a home on earth, it was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. But that didn't last. We know what happened. There was the sin of the tree of knowledge, and God's presence was repelled from this world. And then came Abraham, our father, and he started bringing God back into the world. He started telling people about the idea of God until seven generations later you had Moses who actually brought God back into the physical world. They built the Mishkan, the sanctuary, a physical structure in the wilderness and they brought God's presence back into the physical world and then we had the first and second holy temples and then there was the destruction. And since that time 2,000 years ago, what is our entire agenda? It is to bring God back to this world. And that's why for a Jewish person, although we certainly believe in a spiritual afterlife, in a paradise of the souls, that is not our fixation. Yeah, that's a nice thing to do while you're waiting for this physical world to be perfected. What's heaven? Heaven's a nice place for souls to hang out while they're waiting for the physical world to become perfect. And then once the physical world is perfected, we call that Mashiach, the Messianic era, Then what happens to all the souls in heaven? Resurrection. They come back into physical bodies. Because ultimately, every spiritual idea needs physical expression. It's not just the body needs a soul. The soul needs a body. If you have intimacy without love, it's not intimate. But if you have love without intimacy then the love is lacking as well. So think about that. Whenever you do a mitzvah, whenever you do a physical act, and you wonder, what's the point of this? It's so technical. It seems so trivial. Why does an infinite God care whether I bind leather straps on my arm or whether, whether I light candles Friday before sundown? What's, what's the point of this physical act? What I'm telling you is that without the physical act, all the deep spirituality remains a theory. It all remains a theory. That's not what God wants. God wants oneness. He is oneness. And he yearns for oneness. Not just potential oneness, but revealed oneness. What is oneness? True oneness. Oneness is when we can see how opposites not only can coexist, but they need each other. If it's only spiritual or only material, that's not oneness. Oneness is when not only do opposites coexist, but they need each other. So for God to be one, what is God looking for? A perfected physical world. Souls and bodies. A world that was perfected by good deeds. Physical acts. Physical acts, not meditations, not ideas, not talking a good game but actually doing good, expending physical energy, burning calories, using our bodies as vessels to do God's will. That's what God's looking for, because that's oneness. That's oneness. So here's what I want to tell you. The fact that we live in a world today, I told you before, that the ubiquitous worldview today is materialism. We can use that. Everything exists for a reason. We can use that. People today intuitively understand how important the physical world is. 
For, for millennia, it was very hard to sell people on the importance of the physical plane. People had miserable lives. They wanted to die. They wanted to go to heaven. Today, people understand the importance of the physical world. They just don't understand why. All we have to do is come in and introduce a small piece of the puzzle that changes the whole thing. That yes, the ultimate is what you do here. Yes, the ultimate is being kind to your fellow and being kind in simple ways, material acts of kindness, tzedakah, charity, helping the poor, making people safe, eradicating disease. All of these things are messianic. Our perfected world that our prophets promised us isn't an escape route to the heavens where we abandon all the issues of embodiment. Our perfected world that our prophets promised us is this physical plane when it is in its perfected form. So we have to tell the world that the physical world is very important. And having, having physical resources is important. It's important that people uh, have what to eat. It's important that people be healthy. It's important that people be at peace with each other. All this social justice stuff is very religious. Because without it, how can people do mitzvahs? They can think mitzvahs, they can believe in mitzvahs, but how can they do it? How can they live it in a physical way? So there's no contradiction, actually, once you understand the big picture. I'll tell you one last uh, story, a little parable. Story about a guy who's uh, driving down the road of life, proverbially, and he is miserable. He is absolutely disgusted with his life. He finds no meaning in it, and he can't go on. He, he, in his desperation, he utters a prayer, and he says, God, I need a new life. I'm miserable with the one that I've got. So, uh, wouldn't you know it, he hears the voice of God right there in his car. And uh, God says, you're looking for a new life? The guy says, yeah. He says, you're in luck. God tells the guy, you're in luck. A brand new life is on sale today for a reasonable price. The guy says, how much? What's a reasonable price? God says, how much you got? The guy says, you know, he's driving, he's in the car. Uh, I got $20 on me. God says, that's perfect. The price for your new life today is $20. So he says, God, that's, that's all my money. You're going to clean me out. Then I won't have, uh, you see, I'm driving this car right here. The, the fuel's almost done empty. And if I don't have money, then I can't put gas in the car. God says, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I forgot to tell you, the price for your new life today is $20 in your car. I forgot you had a car. $20 in your car. The guy's like, hold on, wait, wait, God, God, hold on. If I give you my car, how am I going to get to work in the morning? God says, oh, that's, that's a good point. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Uh, I forgot to tell you, the price for your new life today is $20, your car, and your job. You have a job. The guy says, God, if I give up my job, I don't get paid. How am I going to pay the mortgage? God says, oh, that's right. You're a homeowner. You, you, you have a house. Okay, yeah, I forgot. The price for your new life today is $20. Your car, your job, and your house. The guy says, God, if I give you my house, where are my wife and children going to live? God says, oh. Wife and children, yeah. The price for your new life today is $20, your car, your job, your house, your wife, and your children. You have anything else you want to mention to me? And the guy realizes at this point, you just, you better shut up. So he says, mm-mm, mm-mm. God says, okay, good. I'm going to take this stuff from you, okay? Um, and I'm going to give you a new life, but before I do, I just, there's one more thing. Just one more thing I need from you. You got a problem with that? And the guy's like, mm-mm, mm-mm. He doesn't want to talk. God says, okay, here's what I want from you. 
God says, see this $20? It's not your $20. It's my $20, God says. It's not yours. It's mine. I want you to spend it. But because it's mine, you have to spend it on what I want to buy, not what you want to buy. It's my $20, God says. You've got to spend it on what I want to buy. See this car, God says? You used to have a car just like this. You don't anymore. It's my car, God says. But uh, I want you to drive it for me. It's not yours. It's my car, God says, but I want you to drive it for me. And that means, since it's my car, you're driving it for me, you only go to the places where I want to go. See this job. It's not your job. It's my job, God says. You've got to show up there, and you've got to conduct business the way I want business conducted, and you've got to treat the people there the way that I want them treated. Can you do that? You see, this house, God says, it's not your house, God says. I want you to live in it, and I want you to use it. I want you to use God's house the way God's house ought to be used. It has to be a place of hospitality. It has to have an open-door policy. It's my house. You run it. See, this wife and children, they're not your wife and children, God says. They're my wife and children. And I want you to treat them as such. Can you do all of this for me? guy says, mm-hmm. God says, good. Then here's your $20. Here's your car. Here's your job. Here's your house. Here's your wife and your kids. And here's your new life. The difference between the old life and the new life is not the stuff that we have in it. God has blessed us, especially in this generation, the most affluent generation of Jewish people in history, with abundant resources. It's not about the stuff. It's not the vus, it's the farvas. It's not the what, it's the why. Now that you have the things, tell me about the meaning. What are you going to use it for? What's its purpose? What's the mission you're on? And once you understand everything in terms of mission and purpose, then all the things, not only do they have a place in our life, they become as holy as the spiritual. Just like Rashbats needed that sheep to keep the Fabrengen going. All of our material resources are fuel for a spiritual fire. The car, the job, the house, the money, whatever it is that God has blessed us with, it's not the problem. God gave us bounty. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. If you know how to use it. If you know how to use it. And that's the Jewish view. We don't see things devoid of its purpose. We don't see bodies devoid of their souls. Everything physical exists for a spiritual purpose. And this is what Jacob was wrestling with Esau about from the beginning of our history as a people. I said I was going to tell you one last thing, but Hashi just gave me the five-minute signal. And if I got five minutes up here, you know, <laughs> all the retreats from all the years where I had another five minutes to say and I got cut off, you know, now I'm going to, here's my... Here's my opportunity. I'm just running through all my speeches from all the years that I didn't finish. Okay. I'll tell you one more thing about this. There was a Jew. He had a BBC radio program for many years, for decades, named Hugo Green. And he was a Holocaust survivor. And uh, he was actually, he had an unusual situation. He was in Auschwitz with his father. They were in the same barrack. And he was about 15 years old. And he talks about one night he came back from a day of slave labor. It was bitter cold. It was the middle of the winter in Poland. Bitter, bitter cold. Comes back from a day of slave labor. And he comes back to the barrack. And as he walks in, he is horrified to see in the corner of the barrack, sort of crouched in the shadows, he sees his father. And as he peers into the shadows, he can sort of make out what's going on. His father is holding a piece of scrap metal that he picked up from the yard, which was punishable by death. To pick up anything, for a prisoner to pick up anything is considered contraband. And he had taken a 
a strip of fabric from his uniform. They had these threadbare little uniforms. They didn't have proper clothing for the cold. It was in the middle of the winter. But his father tore a little strip of fabric from his uniform, and he twisted it like a wick. And somehow he bribed somebody, and he got a sliver of butter. A sliver of butter in Auschwitz was like gold, more than gold. So he had the piece of scrap metal, the torn piece of uniform, and he had the sliver of butter. And Hugo realizes it's the first night of Hanukkah, and his father is lighting the menorah. And as he realizes this, he automatically, reflexively, just screams out, No! Stop! Now, nobody in this room, I hope, can relate to that visceral cry, why Hugo screamed, No! Stop! When I tell this story to young people, they say, well, he, he was upset that his father was being religious, or he was worried that a guard would come in and catch them. Thank God young people don't understand what was happening in that story. They were dying of starvation. He was taking a piece of butter that you could put on your tongue and get fat, get calories, and he was burning it. That's why he screamed reflexively without even thinking, no, stop, you're going to take the butter, you're going to burn it. You can put that on your tongue, you could live for another day. So he says, my father turns to me and he says to me something that I'll never forget as long as I live. He says to me, Hugo, if being in Auschwitz has taught us anything, it is that a man can live for many days without food, but he cannot live one moment without hope. Now thank God we don't have that dilemma. We're not in that situation where we have to choose eating the butter or burning it in order to make the light of Hanukkah, which represents the hope of the Jewish people. We have enough butter to eat and to light the menorah and then some. So we're not posed with that same dilemma. But the lesson's an eternal lesson. The lesson's an eternal lesson. The lesson is materiality isn't just materiality. Every physical object, every physical resource is fuel to create spiritual light. Everything, not just a sliver of butter, the house, the car, the job, it's all fuel. If you view it like a materialist, it's just a bunch of things. Enjoy it. All you got is today. But if you live like a, like a Jew, like a Jew, then every physical experience is an opportunity to marry the spiritual and the material, the abstract and the concrete, the soul and the body, and to give God what he really wants. True oneness, which transcends spiritual and material, which transcends the very opposites of reality. That is oneness. And the fact that we are not only a part of it, but we are the mechanism. This is just mind-blowing. We, you, I, everyone in this room, we are the mechanism through which God's oneness becomes revealed, through which the spiritual and the material become married to each other. So what's my bottom line? You're at the retreat. Go eat. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.